The Heather McCoy Show. And welcome back to The Heather McCoy Show. Join me on the line is Don Paley. Her new book is Drug War Capitalism. It's an eye-opening look at the war on drugs, and it adds context to a very murky and dark situation in U.S. foreign policy. Welcome to the show, Don. Thanks, Heather. Um, so before we start with how the drug war is used to further neoliberal policies to open up new markets for capitalism, I think we should start off, well, off with uh, kind of a background to the war on drugs domestically, which has an interesting history that started at the end of the 1800s as local measures that reflected anti-immigrant views. Yeah, I mean, I document a little bit uh, in the book, uh, in Chapter 2, kind of do a bit of an overview of the well, the war on drugs was declared by Nixon, um, but sort of the precursors to to that war. I mean, some of the nuggets that I dug up in the course of my research um, were that, for example, cocaine was basically first manufactured in Colombia and Peru by German and U.S. pharmaceutical companies, for example. Um, and you know, this is something that I think also carries through to today. So you see the involvement of these governments that later go on to persecute these substances in their creation and their promotion. Um, in terms of the, the domestic uh, drug war um, or precursor or, or prefiguration of, of the drug wars in the U.S., you had the persecution uh, of primarily people of Mexican descent um, for using marijuana and then also uh, the persecution of, of Chinese folks in the United States uh, on the pretext um, that they were using opium. So there's all kinds of um, interesting bits and pieces of history. I didn't um, really focus on the present-day uh, war on drugs in the United States just because that obviously deserves its own treatment. Um, yeah. I do refer to Michelle Alexander's book, um, The New Jim Crow, um, which I think is a really good resource for folks um, you know, who are interested in, in, in really excellent research um, and very social justice-oriented work around the impact of the drug war in the United States um, today. Yeah, sometimes I wonder um, domestically with the war on drugs how it's created the U.S. as the largest prison population on earth. I often wonder if there's a correlation between our industrial deindustrialization of our economy that started in the 80s and the growth of our prison population as a way to store access working class um, population without jobs. I mean, it seems feasible in many ways, but it's not something that I um, necessarily have the hard data or, or, or did the research on. I do think that there's some work around um, methamphetamines. I think there's a book called Methland, um, which I read part of as I was researching the book, which sort of looks at um, the deindustrialization of um, parts of the American Midwest and um, the use of meth and the criminalization of populations using it as well. Yeah. Um, with the modern policy that we w live with today, that occurred when President Nixon declared a war on drugs in 1969 mm -hmm. and passed the Comprehensive Drug and Prevention and Control Act. How did mm -hmm. how was the war on drugs a way to stifle political rebellion in the 70s and open the door wider for federal uh, involvement in policing? Well, what's interesting is that I um, I found out that the the United States wasn't the only country to use. Um, the pretext of narcotics and, and policing narcotics as a way to crack down on dissent. Um, in her excellent book, uh, The Political Economy of Narcotics, Julia Buxton writes about how that was actually something that was done sort of across the political spectrum. So it was done in the Soviet Union, it was done in Europe, uh, it was done in the United States, this use of drugs, uh, use of narcotics 
to criminalize um, basically post-1968 political dissent and dissent among youth. Um, but the United States, obviously, as time went on, has proven to be uh, a special case, you know, the highest pr prison population uh, on the planet by far. And, you know, mo so many people, for example, at one point recently, more than 50% of people in, in federal prisons in the United States uh, were there because of drug charges. So, you know, the book kind of looks briefly at um, those policies in the, in the United States since the 1960s, um, and you saw things like, for example, uh, in the 1980s, uh, drugs were used and, and policing narcotics was used as an, as an excuse to change uh, posse comitatus, which previously prevented um, the Army from participating in domestic police operations in the United States. And what they argued was that uh, because of the Colombian drug cartels and the nefarious and narcotics dealers, um, that you know the army in the in the U.S. could actually participate in policing if it had to do with narcotics. So that's kind of one example of of that kind of leakage or that kind of spillage, um, where you know the militarization of policing um, linked to um, again policing narcotics is happening in the U.S. And I, I argue that. That kind of slippage is what we later uh, go on to see uh, in, in, in much more uh, overt ways uh, in South America. The, the media narrative surrounding the foreign policy version of the war on drugs is that there's helpless state governments that are taking on cartels in Colombia and um, Mexico who traffic drugs. And then um, with that's some, and it's basically government agents versus the cartels. And that's how the media framework in the U.S. sees our foreign involvement with our, the drug trade. How did you discover the narrative that you lay out throughout your book? Well, I, I describe what you just kind of uh, mentioned as uh, the cart a cartel wars narrative. So you, you have the, the state-created and sponsored narrative and, and promoted by the mainstream media, um, like you said, that the drug war is really about um, these bad guys fighting among themselves and the, and the state trying to intervene. And I started to think differently about this um, after having been multiple times to um, Ciudad Juarez across the border from El Paso, Texas, and just meeting over and over with um, people there, with people who've survived the violence, with journalists, with researchers, um, who just kept insisting that what was happening in, in Ciudad Juarez although the media every day was bombarding people with the idea that the violence there, um, you know, what it became known as the murder capital of the world or the most violent city on the planet um, between 2008 and 2010. So the media was telling people every day that the, the reason for all that violence, the spike in violence, was a split um, and, a, and a war basically with the Sinaloa cartel. Um, and that there was maybe Zetas getting in there, and that there was other cartels involved. But what people were telling me through these interviews, who lived in that, who lived in the city, who had lived in the city, most of them for for the majority of their lives, was that in fact the violence really started to get out of hand in Juarez when the city was militarized in 2008, when 5,000 federal police officers and 5,000 soldiers uh, were sent into the city to, supposedly to fight drug cartels, that, that folks were able to trace, basically, directly, the arrival of a huge amount of troops to the city and the, the explosion of violence. 
And actually, when those police and soldiers left Juarez, at the same time, uh, essentially within months, the murder rate um, dropped not exactly to what it was before, but significantly. And so that was sort of a concrete experience. And having gone back to the city numerous times um, and then continuing to interview people and just realizing, okay, this isn't one or two people that are, that are describing this to me. This is something that, um, you know, you can strike up a conversation with someone and they'll say, you know, we're, we're being uh, attacked by police or the problem is that the, the soldiers are, um, you know, involved in, in the violence or involved in the disappearance of, of people and so on. So that case of what is was the first one um, where I was really able to start to see through um, that, that mainstream discourse. Yeah, you describe it very well. You say basically that it's a war against the people in those countries. And then it's not you make a very clear distinction that these the people that you're talking about, the civilians are not, you know, casualties. Um, I forget the term that it's used right now, but it's, they're not uh, they're not just like it's collateral. damage. Yeah, or... they're not collateral damage. They're they're the targets. Exactly. And that that's actually something um, that. I first started to learn about while I was working in, in Colombia quite a few years ago um, with uh, the NASA people in the south of Colombia. And, you know, there there's the, the guerrilla fighting uh, the paramilitary groups in the state. So, they, you know, they refer to all the different groups as being armed actors. And, again, what the media is telling us about that conflict, whether you're within Colombia or if you're reading something, you know, an international reporter, um, is that all of these armed actors are fighting each other and that this, this, the, the civilians, the, the regular people who are being killed are, are, again, like this kind of collateral damage. And what the NASA people would insist on over and over again is that um, they, they are not collateral damage, that, they, that, they're, that the attacks on them and the violence is against them, and it has to do with pushing them off their territory. And so, you know, part of the inspiration for this book was that I had worked in Colombia um, in the early, mid-2000s, and then having gone later to Mexico and watched the Merida Initiative, which is modeled on San Colombia, being introduced there, and see some of those same discourses coming out in the mainstream narrative about, um, you know, about the war being between bad guys and the state, um, when actually what you're seeing when you start visiting these places is that it's regular folks, especially people who are marginalized in society, um, people who work in the informal sector, for example, which is a large segment of the population, upwards of 50% in parts of Central America, um, migrants and so on, who are actually the people who tend to be the targets of this violence. And they're often presented in the media as having been involved in something. Um, you know, they were, you know, for example, in Mexico they talk about narcofosas, which means narco grave. And so for a long time when they would find mass graves in Mexico over the past few years, this is a fairly recent phenomenon, it would automatically be assumed that all of the people in those graves were responsible for their own deaths, basically, um, because they must have been doing something bad to end up there. Um, that's a narrative that's promoted by the state, it's promoted by the police, and it's repeated by the media. And it's really only when you start going into communities and talking to folks and also paying attention to the work that activist groups are doing and otherwise to, to make visible what's actually going on, that you start to realize, wait a second, of course everyone that's being murdered aren't involved in the drug trade. I mean, even if they are, that doesn't justify their murder, but, but they're just simply not. In fact, many of these people are um, just involved in, 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 like I said, the informal economy, they're communal landowners, they're indigenous people, 
um, queer people, uh, folks who are, are marginalized often and discriminated against in these countries, these are the people who are, who are often being murdered in the context of this war. Talk about how the armed actors, the cartels, and the, um, the state police are essentially in parallel with each other, and sometimes they work for the state, sometimes they work for a corporation like Chiquita Banana. Right. I mean, this is really one of the most difficult pieces, I think, in the book, um, in that it's very difficult to prove. Like, there's a, there's a few cases where we, we get a little bit of light shone on the collaboration between state security forces and paramilitary groups. For example, in Colombia, you had um, the United um, Self-Defense Groups, the AUC, which was patrolling large sections of the country, and every once in a while it would surface that that paramilitary group, which is primarily financed through uh, drugs, um, that, they, that they would patrol, do joint patrols with, with Colombian military, for example, or they would be sharing resources with the Colombian military. Um, through court cases, we were later, later able to get information about the collaboration between huge corporations like Chiquita Bananas, like Drummond, the mining company, like BP, the oil company, these really the, the, the sort of cream of the crop, largest transnational corporations on the planet, um, collaborating with these same uh, paramilitary groups in order to, for example, um, control union organizing or ensure that, um, you know, people who are protesting uh, or who refuse to leave their lands for the construction of an oil pipeline, for example, um, would be eliminated, would be removed from the territory by, by groups that appear not to have anything to do with the state uh, or the Colombian state or the, or the corporation itself. And interestingly, there was, in 2008, there was uh, the beginning of kind of an opening of a, a de-paramilitarization process, which never actually came to fruition. Um, but part of what happened during that process was a couple of the big paramilitary leaders started to speak out and they started to name the, the Congress people and the senators that they had financed their campaigns, that they had supported their campaigns, that they had supported um, their political activities as paramilitaries. And as soon as those folks started talking, they really didn't last very long. They were actually extradited to the United States. Oh, wow. And those extraditions were for charges of uh, drug trafficking, which is, of course, much you know, less than what the kinds of charges they would have faced in Colombia, which probably would have been closer to something like crimes against humanity for massacres, killings, disappearances, etc., and what those extraditions did was it silenced those, those, those paramilitaries, those, those leaders, who be, paramilitary leaders who began to speak out about all the links between the state and the paramilitary groups. So, you know, you see also a very active hand um, of the United States in controlling, um, you know, that, that message and the possibility that the information of the depth of the collaboration between these different groups gets out. Um, just to speak to Mexico for a moment, so in the book I sort of trace the drug war, um, the modern drug war or the sort of type of drug war that's taking place um, in the Southern Hemisphere, as starting with uh, Colombia, with Plan Colombia in 2000, and then coming up to Mexico through the Merida Initiative, and these are both U.S.-backed, um, primarily military initiatives um, based around uh, uh, controlling this rhetoric of controlling the amount of drugs arriving to the United States. And then there's the Central America region in Central America. So in the book, I sort of look at 
what happened in Colombia and then what, what starts to happen in Mexico uh, or increasingly is happening in Mexico from 2008, and that's sort of the focus of the book. And I also argue uh, in the book that we can start or that we may start to consider these drug cartels in Mexico as being something uh, more similar, in fact, to paramilitary groups. Um, it's not a discourse that we're particularly used to hearing um, with regards to Mexico. There's very, you know, a focus uh, almost exclusively on the cartels, the Sinaloa cartel in the Gulf cartel and the Zetas and so on. But, um, in fact, recent events like, like the disappearance of the, of the 43 students um, in Guerrero in September, I think, help us to understand how those drug cartels are actually more like paramilitary groups than they are like, like drug cartels. The main difference there being that a paramilitary group uh, does work with state forces directly. Yeah, so and we know, for example, right, with the kidnapping of those students, that the, that the, the police officers who arrested them passed them off to members of what the state calls Guerreros Unidos or organized crime, but which I argue are actually more like a paramilitary group because they're working directly with those state forces. So that's kind of another example, another manifestation of, of how those, those connections exist between official state forces and, and these drug cartels or, or paramilitary groups. One of the questions I have is, like, how did the drug war evolve? Because, like, in 82, Reagan started the crop eradication. And was it always, like, a neoliberal plan to basically— it's basically a multinational corporate manifest destiny where it's just it's acquisition of land and territory and resources. Was it always that way? Or how did we get from the 70s to, to Plan Columbia? When, when was it kind of activated within a— I don't know, it's like a cousin policy of the IMF and World Bank. Was it always that way, or did Plan Columbia, like, derive a new threshold of, of like, neoliberalism policies within the drug war? Yeah, that, that would basically be, you know, I think the argument that, that, that I make in the book is that um, previous to Plan Columbia, there was, there was all these piecemeal efforts. There was crop eradication. There was, um, you know, uh, infiltration of policing, the DEA was active in Mexico and, and Colombia and elsewhere. Um, I write in the book about how the U.S. actually um, attempted to apply sanctions to Colombia at one point in the 1990s, um, but the main um, victims of the sanctions, so to say, or the, those who were hurt by those sanctions, turned out to be U.S. oil companies. So they tried all these different methods, but a little bit piecemeal, and it was really with Plan Colombia where you see um, this sort of modern, like, totalitizing drug war where you say, okay, we're going to militarize the police, we're going to retrain all these police officers, we're going to activate the army, we're going to fund all this new equipment for the police and the army. Um, we're also going to fund the total overhaul of the legal system, um, change the legal system in Colombia from... Uh, a written accusatorial system, its own legal tradition, into a copy, um, what one of my sources in the book called a cheap copy um, of the U.S. legal system, and introduce a bunch of new regulations, um, new regulations to uh, improve the business climate, to uh, encourage investment, etc. So this sort of big package, which includes things not exactly like structural adjustment, certainly not framed like structural adjustments, but which, you know, are all about making the business climate better, happening side by side with really intense militarization, and that militarization leading to an intensification of the paramilitarization. Very 
full project, a very sort of total project for Colombia, um, that I argue uh, is essentially that that's a new model, and I think that's when we that's when we can start to really point to um, a neoliberal uh, style drug war, um, a foreign drug war, for you know backed primarily by the United States, but of course other countries are also active, European countries, Israel, Canada, etc. Yeah, you mentioned an improved business climate. That was one of the funnier things in the book, where. It was just like, yeah, applying Columbia didn't stop any cocaine from entering the U.S., but it was successful because it improved the business climate in Columbia, and they basically took a lot of indigenous lands and turned it into mining operations. Yeah, it was basically just the moment, Heather, when I realized, like, okay, I can do this book. Like, I had this, I had this sort of intuition about what was going on, but when I found um, that report, um, a report by the Government Accountability Office in the United States, and it included statements from people from the State Department and USAID saying that very same thing, basically saying, well, you know, it's been a failure in terms of the actual thing that it was supposed to do. You know, it's been a failure in terms of reducing the amount of cocaine reaching the United States, but it's been a success in terms of promoting the overall goals of U.S. foreign policy. And it's been a success in terms of creating a better business climate. When I realized that, you know, U.S. administration officials themselves were admitting that, I thought, okay, there's something here. Yeah, there's... Right? It's not the repetition of a failed policy in Mexico. It's using that same discourse of the drug war, which, of course, is going to fail. But the actual goals of the policy are far different than, than, what, we're, than what we're presented with. And that's why I argue in the book that, we need new metrics to start to understand what success and failure means in this context. Yeah, and some of the things they export is are like they have this education system which has is high on standardized testing because they basically want to import. They're using the violence and, and stuff, so it's really hard to organize against things like education reform, quote unquote, where you basically have standardized testing so you can work in the maquiladoras on the border. Exactly, and I mean it can bring it right back again to Ayotzinapa. I mean, those students in the normal school in Ayotzinapa, Guerrero, have for the last many years, they've been known as very combative, but particularly in the last few years, been fighting very hard. They've been at the forefront of the fight in Mexico against education reforms, demonstrating all the time, um, you know, being very active in their communities and in the state and, and, and nationally in terms of fighting those education reforms that are doing things like, you know, standardized testing, trying to get rid of or make access more difficult or that would result in, you know, access to, to education becoming more difficult um, for poor and working people in Mexico, et cetera. Those students, you know, that's, that's what they were known for, essentially, was, was this major struggle against these neoliberal reforms to education. And so, you know, it's, it's no coincidence that these, mili these militant combative students who are organized um, were, were targeted for this uh, horrific, horrific violence that you know still hasn't been resolved in, in any way. Yeah. Um, although the Mexican government is, is, has closed the case, and they say that all, all the people responsible for um, disappearing those students uh, are now in jail, um, the Mexican people just don't believe it. It's, it's, it simply isn't true. Yeah, it reminds me of the story that you told about the, the, the girl that was killed in the desert, and then when the mom demanded to find where her body was left, she was said, for, uh, the first state official said yes, and then they said no, and then the whole team of people ha took to her on this really long route to get there, and then she found a trail up to a road, and oh, there was a military group. So everyone involved with that party knew that there was something um, not quite right there. 
Exactly. And these are just the little stories that you hear from people. I mean, by little, I don't mean unimportant. I just mean the sort of micro um, individual stories that, that people will tell you about their own struggles, about their own, um, you know, losing a relative uh, or a friend or a family member in this country presents people with this maze. Of, of searching, you know, for the for the disappeared or, or a, attempting to to access justice in some way, and this story that I tell at the beginning of, of the chapter that's focused on the army and police involvement in the violence here in Mexico, um, really I thought demonstrated that. But it's just one of I think what so many other stories, you know, and I continue to collect testimonies and learn from people about the ways in which um, state officials in this country are regularly involved in, in covering up the tracks uh, of criminals, be, be those criminals affiliated with the state or not affiliated with the state. But it's just this, you know, thing that you hear over and over again about the um, refusal of state officials to actually assist families um, and, and their, their constant recurrence to actually covering up the crimes of, of these criminal groups. It's, it's t- totally heartbreaking. It's, it's horrific. Yeah. Um, if you're just joining us, the guest I have on the air right now joining us from Mexico is Don Pele. Her new book is Drug War Capitalism. It's out right now on AK Press. And uh, so um, I don't know Spanish very well at all, basically. So if I mispronounce this, um, bear with it. Um, so how do, is it uh, Ojos, the communal farmers, how do they deal with the privatization schemes of their land involving banks? Okay, so they're called ejidos. Ejidos, um, okay. And the ejidos are uh, communal landowners that are recognized by the Mexican government. Um, and, you know, many of the ejidos date back 50, 70 years. Um, and in fact, most recent statistics continue to tell us that um, upwards of 50% of the national territory in Mexico is actually uh, in the hands of communal landowners. So they're a very important um, feature. Uh, in Mexican agriculture, and Mexican politics, and Mexican social organizations, these ejidos, primarily in rural areas. Um, and, you know, in 1994, when NAFTA was signed, there had been a constitutional uh, change which allowed the communal land to be sold privately. But what's, and, and that's often talked about as a, this is, NAFTA was so bad, look at what NAFTA did. It privatized, uh, it allowed all the, the privatization of all this communal land. But when you actually look at it, what you learn, or you study carefully, is that many, many people in these ejidos, they simply refuse. They refuse to let um, the government come and map their lands. They refuse to let them parcel it, and they refuse to let them privatize it. So what I kind of argue in the book is basically that the, you know, some of the violence from the drug war can be understood as, as basically efforts to undo these communal landowner structures. Um, they couldn't do it legally. They couldn't do it through paperwork. They couldn't do it through bureaucracy. People simply do not want to leave their land, the land that they own together and that they farm together and so on. And that um, the use of intimidation by federal police officers, the use of violence um, from the state or from non-state groups has actually become the resource that the state is using in order to um, try to open up those lands because many, right now, much of um, Ejido land is of great interest, particularly, particularly to mining companies. 
So where you had lands before that, for example, didn't have access to irrigation, and I'm not talking about all Ejido lands, but where the lands weren't considered particularly valuable um, before, now they take on another light because there's minerals there. And so that, you know, extra sort of interest um, of transnational mining corporations, for example, wanting to operate on Ejido lands, is something that has sparked conflict uh, across the country over the past, I would say, decade, over and over again. Um, but what you see is with, the, with, with, with those conflicts now taking place in the sort of flame, framework um, of a very militarized uh, drug war, you tend to see more acts of violence um, against communal landowners um, and activists from those communities who are trying to protect their lands. Talk about the violence against activists and how it, it basically kills any movement that tries to, to take off. Well, I mean, that's a very um, interesting and very tough question. Um, I, I found that, you know, during the writing of the book, I wanted to focus not just on activists, right, like, like we talked about before, for example, how people being targeted in this war are, you know, informal laborers and migrants and so on. But yeah. Activists as well, right? Not exclusively activists, but certainly not to say that activists are not being targeted. Um, I include in the book uh, one section uh, of, of in the north of Chihuahua State, um, where members of an Ejido were fighting a Canadian mining company, and two of the main activists were murdered. Um, they were shot point blank uh, in their vehicle. And what was interesting to me about this case uh, in particular, and what kind of differentiated it was that the mining company, the Canadian mining company, later came out and said, well, you know, I don't know why people are making such a big deal out of this. There's like a hundred of thousands of people who've been murdered in Mexico in the past six years, and these are just two more. Yeah. So that's just kind of like one example, right, of where you have this sort of overall intense intensification of violence socially, that but what was surprising was that the company would just say it in those words, right? Would say, well, you know, what's the big deal? People get killed here all the time. Just that normalization of violence allows, you know, for many different kinds of people to be murdered and for it to just be made to seem like it's just random and it's normal here. And certainly activists have been targeted um, repeatedly. You know, Ayotzinapa, I think, is, is one of the main key examples, we need to understand that these students were very organized and very militant, and that's why they were targeted. Um, that's why, you know, they were disappeared. And so you see this in, throughout the country in all different regions shortly after um, what took place in Ayotzinapa, another activist in Guerrero was murdered. It's, it's a, quite a constant thing, and the drug war and the overall escalation of violence against the population makes it far easier for the state and for corporations to just say, well, they're just two more. They're, it's just one more death, you know, in a very violent place, and it, it wasn't necessarily political, um, which is, of course, a very, uh, very, very dangerous and scary discourse um, for for everyone who, who lives in, in Mexico. And, you know, I mentioned briefly, but I also uh, have a short chapter about um, Honduras and Guatemala in the book, and the idea was to not say this is a Mexico problem, um, what's happening with the drug war and the drug war violence? Rather, say this is a this is what happens when you apply this kind of, of U.S. backed policy in these countries, and you actually see that there's quite uh, similar um, kinds of violence and 
kinds of promotion of foreign direct investment and so on happening in all of these different places. Yeah, foreign direct investment skyrocketed after Plan Columbia. Um, so one of the things that was kind of interesting was I was in the middle of reading your book. I think I was on the Columbia chapter at the time. And um, I was on Facebook, and this uh, friend linked to a story from Rutgers about a 42-year-old woman running for mayor, and her name was Ada Neva, and she was actually uh, kidnapped and decapitated. And then before I click, before I clicked on it, I'm like, I'm like, a hundred bucks, she's a leftist. And then I clicked on it, and sure enough, she was. Um, it's just amazing how your thesis holds up in the real world. It's something that um, I'm not happy about, you know, in some ways. Like, I wish it would be disproven and things would be overturned and, and it wouldn't continue on this way. Um, but I think that what drug war capitalism does offer is is a framework that's useful right now for understanding um, how the drug war is not something that's not political. Um, it's not something that's just about dollar bills and cocaine. It is actually, you know, a kind of a counter-revolutionary uh, war. It's a reactionary war. It's a war against the people. I Like, I, I wish the thesis wouldn't hold up. I wish the violence would stop. Um, but like you said, I, I hadn't heard of, of the case that you mentioned, but uh, unfortunately, over and over again, um, you see more parallels. In fact, Joseph Biden just announced uh, recently something called the Alliance for Prosperity, uh, which is going to be a billion-dollar plan for El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala. And as I start looking through it, I'm just going, oh, my God, this is totally what drug war capitalism is about. It's saying, well, we're going to improve, we're going to reduce the flow of migration to the United States, basically by building new gas pipelines and new roads and new border checkpoints, and it's going to be great. <laughs> but it's just, again, another kind of iteration of that same kind of policy, which obviously isn't going to reduce migration in any meaningful way um, because it's more of the same. And what the same means is more people displaced, more people unable to survive, um, more violence. And, you know, that's why people leave. That's why people leave their home countries. Yeah, we'll leave off with this last question is like, it seems like... Um... In my lifetime, as things have just kind of gone on, and um, I I don't know how to say this, so it just seems like there's always an escalation. Like the the this Plan Colombia is an escalation to wedge in neoliberalism, capitalism within Colombia. Um, do you see this these kind of policies with the militarization of our own police force and how you know Calvin Bundy was essentially not arrested for shoot, trying to shoot off, uh, you know, land and bureau people. It, do you see, like, t um, basically militias being normalized within this country and operating in much of the same way in Mexico in the future, possibly? I mean, I, I honestly, I don't know enough about the militias in the United States. I don't think to be able to answer your question. Okay. Um, what, what I... What I do think, though, is that these, what's happening in Mexico and what's happening in Central America and Colombia obviously is not separate from what's taking place inside the United States, the tendency towards militarization and so on. The one, I guess, thing that I would just warn about is the, is the overemphasis on militias as, uh, you know, the killers and the bad guys, when in fact, you know, militia, drug cartel, paramilitary group, etc., they're awful. Yeah. Um, obviously, right? But what a lot of focus on those groups tend to do is obscure the role of the state. And when you look at the numbers, 
often it is state forces who continue to be involved, and we've seen this as the number of, of police-involved shootings, um, you know, in the U.S. and Canada and elsewhere, who are actually the ones um, that are responsible for, you know, far more than than what they like to admit, and often that. Obviously, it's important to look at paramilitary groups and cartels and militias and so on, but I just think that we need to also make sure that we keep, you know, a firm, uh, a firm eye on the, act, the activities of, of state uh, security forces, for sure. Yeah, my guest has been Don Paley. Her new book is Drug War Capitalism uh, from AK Press. It's out now. Thanks for being on the show this morning, and um, we'll hopefully have you on soon again. Thank you so much, Heather. It was a pleasure talking to you this morning, and, and I'd love to come back sometime. Okay. Yeah, of course, this is the Heather McCoy Show. We're running a little bit late. Um, Ask a Leader is on right now, and I'll be on again um, for HRA's Cooking Accident 6. No sports. That's always a good thing. This is 88.9 KCI FM in Irvine.